Thank you very much. Great to be here again. And um, if you have a Bible, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. And if you do have a Bible, it would be useful for you just to have it there open so you can keep referring to the bits that I'm, that I'm talking about. Uh, so as Neil said, we're continuing a series in the book of Philippians. That's what we're doing this term with a few gaps built in for the odd Sunday morning on a, on a different theme. But um, the thread that's running through this term is, is this book of Philippians. And um, yeah, Ron kicked us off a couple of weeks ago with this series. And one of the things that Ron talked about was he gave us a bit of background to this, to this book. And so very short version of that is that this is a letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a church that he established in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And um, he, he did that during one of his missionary journeys. It wasn't his first choice of where to go, incidentally. It, was, it, it wasn't where he was planning to go, but it is where God opened a door for him. A little bit like us and, and Hazelmere, actually. God opened a door for us there, and, and there we are now. And actually, interestingly, this church in Philippi was the first church established in what we now know as Europe. So it's a, it's a really very uh, significant thing. So Paul's writing to the believers in Philippi, this church that he had established and then had to leave behind. Um, and he's writing to encourage them and to equip them to, to bring his wisdom and to bring God's wisdom on certain matters um, that will become apparent as we go through the series. But crucial fact here, really crucial bit of context, is that Paul is in prison. Paul is writing this letter from prison, which means obviously he can't go anywhere and he's chained to a prison guard 24-7. And um, as I've been looking at this this week, I've been wondering, how would I respond to this? How would I respond in Paul's situation? I, don't th- I probably wouldn't respond all that well, to be honest. I'd probably be feeling a bit depressed, um, anxious about what's going to happen to me. Um, probably focusing on what I've lost, the, all of the liberty, the freedoms that I've lost, the things I can't do. Maybe thinking how unfair this is, I haven't done anything wrong. God, why would you allow this to happen? But Paul's response to his situation is amazing. It is remarkable. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we get a stunning insight into, into Paul's whole outlook on life, his whole perspective and attitude to life, and, and he, what makes him tick, what motivates him. And it's really very, very challenging. I've been extremely challenged by this um, this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first of all take you through the passage relatively quickly, bringing comment here and there. Uh, before coming back to what I think is the key verse, the, the real key here to, to this attitude that we see displayed in Paul. And that, you know, if we're to take Paul as a good model, a good example for us, that actually something that we should aspire to as well, a good, the, the attitude that we should really see displayed in all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. So the passage we're looking at is Philippians 1, 12 to 26, and I'm going to approach it in in, in chunks, in, in sections. This follows on from Paul's introductory remarks, so his greeting and his prayer for the Philippians, which is a pretty standard way of opening a letter in those days, and that's what Ron took us through a couple of weeks ago. But now Paul starts a next section, a new section of the letter, with these words. He says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters. I want you to know, brothers and sisters. And even in that little phrase right at the start, we see something about Paul. We see that his concern is not for himself. His concern is for them. It's for the Philippians. He knows that they are concerned about him. And he'd have found that out from Epaphroditus, who's come, he's been sent by the Philippians, bringing gifts to Paul to help him, comfort him, alleviate his suffering, to find out how he's getting on. So they are concerned about his condition. They're concerned about how he's being treated, um, about 
is he, is he sleeping? Is he, you know, what's it like to be chained up to a guard? All that kind of thing. They're very, very concerned. They're concerned about what might happen to him. Because if the trial goes badly, Paul faces execution. And clearly, they're very distressed by this because Paul's very important to them. He, he's the founder of the church. He's, he's the one. He's their apostolic figure. He's the one they look to for advice and, and wisdom. Is, is he going to survive this? But Paul's first thought is not for himself. Paul's first thought is to put their minds at rest and encourage them. But actually, what Paul chooses to encourage them with is probably a bit unexpected. So as they're sitting there listening to this letter being read out, it would have, the letter would have come back with Epaphroditus and it would have been read out to the church. And as they're sitting listening and they hear this phrase, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, they're probably expecting to hear Paul now describe his condition. What things are like for him, what it's like to be chained up to a guard. You know, is he sleeping? Is he being treated well? Is he sick or is he well? But Paul doesn't say any of that. They'll, they'll have to find that out from Epaphroditus firsthand. All Paul wants to talk about is how the gospel is doing. The advance of the gospel. And Paul's passion for the gospel, for the good news of Jesus Christ and how it's advancing, that is what burns through the pages of this whole letter. It just leaps off the page at you. Paul's passion for the advance of the gospel. So he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. These are not circumstances that Paul has chosen. This is not where he wants to be. His, you could say, his career, he has a profession of tent making, but his career is really going around preaching the gospel, planting churches, and he does it very, very successfully. He's very good at it. He has the ability to go into any kind of city context, debate with people, gather enough converts and followers to leave a church behind. It's remarkable. And he's been stopped in his tracks. He's been stopped from doing that. And so it would be very easy for him to question God. You know, why have you allowed this to happen? And whenever we see suffering and injustice in the world, that's a big problem for most people. That's something that causes a lot of people to question God. But when you see it happen to somebody, when you see it happen to somebody like Paul, you, you can kind of think, you know, this guy's given everything for the gospel. He's given everything to serve God. You know, you know, he's planting churches, and why is this happening? Why, God, what are you doing? It'd be a very natural question to ask. You know, don't you realize that he's doing this for you, and he's being very successful? Why would you stop that happening? But Paul never goes down that route. He never even entertains that thought of questioning God in that way because he's placed his life completely in God's hands. He's placed his circumstances completely in God's hands under the authority of God. And he is convinced that God is using this for good. And it was Paul himself who wrote the book of Romans. And that includes Romans 8.28 which says it is for the good. God will work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And he here demonstrates that he lives this he believes this and he lives it out he's saying this is good the circumstances aren't good but this is good because the gospel is advancing you know these palace guards they are now spending their days chained up to the most persuasive evangelist in the world how else are they going to hear about jesus how else is the gospel going to advance in that place? That's how Paul sees it. He sees this as an unexpected opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. And that is the lens through which Paul sees everything, everything in life. 
Is the gospel advancing? Uh, doesn't matter what I'm going through. Doesn't matter what my circumstances are. Is the gospel advancing? Are people hearing the good news? Are people getting saved? That is everything for Paul. And you know, I could easily stop there. And I think that is a massive challenge for us. I'm not going to stop there. You'll be very happy to know. Because I've got lots more to say. But it's challenging. This is challenging stuff. Now you know there will be one one member of the Philippian congregation in, in that church who will be sitting there listening to this letter being read out, smiling to himself, because he's experienced this of Paul firsthand. The Philippian jailer, who we read about in Acts 16, and Ron spoke about him a couple of weeks ago. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Philippi, um, Paul spends a bit of time in prison, you understand. When they're in prison in Philippi, and they refuse the opportunity to escape, when an earthquake comes and it shakes the cell doors open. They could have got out of there. They could have looked to their own interests and got out of there, but they were so concerned about this man, this Philippian jailer. They see he's about to kill himself because he thinks everyone's gone, and they say, well, stop, stop, we're still here. They choose to remain in captivity. They choose to remain in prison out of concern for this man. And that act of selflessness and generosity and kindness results in him and his whole family being saved. Not only is he saved from physical death, he's saved from eternal death. And, and that's what we see in Paul. Paul sees circumstances very differently. Even the most adverse circumstances, he looks for the good that God will bring. He's expecting it. He's, he's waiting for it. He's waiting to see, God, how are you going to use this for the advancement of the gospel? Even these terrible circumstances. So he goes on to say, and because of my chains... Most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is setting this example. He's modeling extraordinary courage in the face of adversity. And the effect of this is that it is emboldening the believers to preach the gospel more boldly. You would think that people being put in prison and persecution would make them stop. No, they see Paul. They see his courage and they're preaching Christ more boldly. And let's just understand what that means in their context. To preach Christ, it's not simply inviting people to receive him into their hearts. It is dangerous. It's dangerous because you are publicly announcing that Christ, not Caesar, is Lord. That's a dangerous thing to do in that context. And they were getting persecuted for it. But they're preaching all the more boldly because they see Paul. Look at how Paul is responding. And it inspires them. So again, Paul sees the gospel through this circumstance. Actually, the gospel is advancing through others. He goes on in verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. So Paul does have enemies, people who don't like him, probably people who are jealous of him and are using, you know, taking advantage of his absence to make a name for themselves. That's probably what this means. And so their motives for preaching are not great. But again, it just doesn't seem to bother Paul. You know, again, I think, how would I respond to that? I... mm, Probably be thinking, how am I going to deal with these people when I get out of here? You know, but, but, but Paul doesn't go down that route. He says, it is, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. And the Philippians are listening to this and they're probably thinking, oh, Paul's going to tell us what he's going to do about this, how he's going to deal with this. But he says, but what does it matter? What? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, 
Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Gospel is advancing. Paul doesn't particularly care how, as long as it's a true gospel being preached. If they were preaching a false gospel, he would have lots to say about that. But he doesn't care about the motives. He doesn't care. As long as Christ is being preached, that's good enough for me. He goes on to say, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And there's such a lot in that, in that particular verse. But to, to put it very simply, one, Paul is very grateful for the prayers of the Philippians. He values their prayers and he's telling them, listen, your prayers, they really do make a difference. They genuinely make a difference to me. And that's a good lesson for us, that our prayers are never in vain. It's powerful. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is effective. We don't always see the effects of it, but it is powerful. It is effective. And we must never give up praying, particularly for those who are going through hardship. That's why, as Neil said, these encounter evenings, so important that we gather together with the purpose of together as God's people, we are going to pray into the things that God gives us to pray about, the things that are going on here in our town and the places we're involved in overseas. We're going to gather and we're going to pray because prayer makes a real difference. Not only to situations, but in our own hearts as well. So Paul values their prayers. And then when he talks about being delivered, his deliverance, what he's saying here, he's not talking about deliverance in terms of being set free from prison, He's talking about how this, what he's going through right now is refining him. He's talking about his ultimate deliverance, his ultimate eternal salvation. And that's a, that's a massive theme in itself. But, but again, it tells us so much about Paul and how he goes through hardship and suffering and even how he thrives in it. And by the way, he's not making a virtue out of suffering here. There's nothing inherently moral or good about suffering. Because it's not automatic that going through suffering will refine you in the way that Paul is talking about here. Because suffering can make us cold-hearted. It can make us bitter. It can cause us to turn away from God, depending on how we respond to it. But when you have a perspective like Paul's, that God will work all things for good, that God will do good in me through this, when you have a perspective like that, then even in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, it is possible to know joy. And not just a kind of keep your chin up, everything's going to be okay kind of way, but a genuine, deep-seated sense of joy and encouragement. And I'm aware that people here will be going through situations that I know nothing about. And you could be saying, yeah, but you don't know what it's like. And you're absolutely right, I don't. But I would say Paul is more qualified than most to, to comment in this area because of the hardships he went through in his life and how he lives this out. This is challenging. This is very, very challenging stuff. He goes on to say, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. This is Paul's whole aim of life. This is everything about Paul. His whole desire, his whole goal of life, that Christ would be exalted in my body whether by life or by death, for, and this is the verse we're going to come back to, this is the the key thing, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me, yet what shall I choose? And Paul knows, of course, he doesn't actually have the choice of whether he lives or dies. Ultimately, that's up to God. 
but he's having this internal debate going on in himself. What is better? To, to, to remain in life or, 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 or death? What is, what is better? He says, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart. I desire to die and be with Christ because that's better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will, uh, will abound on account of me. So Paul has this internal debate going on. You know, what's, what, what, what's better? And he basically concludes that he would love to die, which sounds very strange to, to us, to our ears and in our culture where, where death is something that is postponed for as long as possible. And it's not really talked about. We don't really know how to cope with it. We don't know how to deal with death very well in our culture. But Paul would love to die because actually that means a greater closeness with Christ. Christ is with him now, but it means that complete union with Christ. Being with him for eternity. That's what Paul wants. He sees that is, that is better than anything. It's better by far. But he also knows he has more to do, that God has more for him to do. It's important for the Philippians that he remains alive. He says, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so internally, in this debate, he puts their needs first again. He desires one thing, but actually, I know you need me. And he's not being arrogant there. He's just simply stating the truth. I know you need me. And so I'm happy to serve you. And, And Paul's life is completely in God's hands. He's happy to be used however and wherever God chooses. And that brings him an amazing freedom. Just this extraordinary freedom that we see here. And one commentator says this. Paul also makes it crystal clear that Christian faithfulness is not an escapist trip out of difficulty or deprivation as in some forms of so-called health and wealth gospels. But it's a victory won in the very midst of poverty and plenty, suffering and well-being, through the grace which makes us content in any situation and adequate for any challenge. And that is the grace, the freedom, the contentment that we see in Paul here. So that's the whole passage. That's what we're looking at today. But as I said, I want to come back now and focus in on that phrase which comes in the middle in verse 21. Where Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. For to me, to live is Christ. Jesus is everything to Paul. His whole life, his whole life revolves around, as we find in the the previous verse, in verse 20, his whole life revolves around Christ being exalted. It's what it's all about for Paul, Christ being exalted, Christ being glorified, Christ being magnified. Put simply, Paul's very deepest desire is that whether through his life or through his death, Christ would be seen as great. Christ would be seen as great. And Paul's not interested in exalting himself, which I guess for many of us, if we're honest, is a tendency we have. We want people to view us in a certain way. We want people to think about us in a certain way. We have tendencies to exalt ourselves a little bit. Paul's not interested in that. He's not interested in exalting himself. Actually, he sees that as fundamentally unloving because that would distract people from the one person in the universe who can love you perfectly and love you for eternity and bring you eternal and perfect joy and happiness. But if Christ is exalted in him, Paul sees people will be drawn to him. People will be drawn to Christ. And it's only in Christ that we can find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. John Piper, who's an American preacher, many of you will know, 
uh, will have heard of, he sums it up like this. He uses this great little phrase to sum it up. He says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Where do we find our satisfaction? God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Paul is saying that Christ will look great in my life because my life is Christ. For me to live is Christ. And he says later on in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything else in life, everything that's happened to Paul, all the people in his life, everything else counted as loss compared to that. Compared to knowing Christ Jesus. So for Paul, Christ is more precious, he's more valuable, he's more satisfying than anything and everything that life on this earth can offer. And actually Paul goes a lot further than that. Because as we've read in verse 20, he says he wants Christ to be exalted, whether that's through his life or through his death. And then he says, for to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Death for Paul is gain. Because it means a greater closeness of being with Christ. You know, if you, if you think of what you lose in death, you lose a lot of things in death. And if you add up all those things that you lose, family, friends, your job, or your, your dream retirement, or all the earthly pleasures you can possibly think of, if you add all those losses up and you replace them only with death and Christ, and you can say, that is gain. That is gain. Then, then Christ will be exalted in your dying. He will. I remember speaking to Frank, Frank Matthews, who um, many of you know was the founder of the, this church here. Um, he died last year. And I remember going to see him. I had the opportunity to go and see him in Shelburne Lodge just down the road uh, where he was. He wasn't well. Um, and it's probably a couple of months before he died. And you know what? His, his whole attitude to life, his whole attitude to everything was, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go home. And he didn't mean back to his house in Hazelmere. He's ready to be with Jesus. And he's looking forward to that. Oh, I just want to be with Jesus now. That was his whole that was his whole life. And the amazing thing was when I went to see him that Frank, in his suffering, he he prayed for me. Because that's who he was. And it was very, very humbling. It really blew me away but the point is Christ was exalted in Frank's life Christ was exalted in Frank's death God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him Christ is glorified in you Christ is seen as great in you when when he is more precious to you than anything that this life can give or anything that death can take away for to me to live is Christ that's Paul's definition of life how he defines life. If I have that, if I have him, then I have everything. You can, you can take anything away from me, materially, physically, relationally. You can take anything away from me, but as long as I have Christ, I have everything. I am living. And as I've been thinking about this this week, this, this phrase, for to me, to live is Christ, I've been thinking, how would I complete that sentence? For me, for to me, to live is What? What would I put in that gap? What would you put in that gap? Let me do a little thought experiment with you. I'm going to read a, a, a section out of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 2. It's an event that most of you will be very familiar with. And what I'd like to do as I read this, um, just try to put yourself in the position of the paralyzed man or, or his friends. And just think at that point, at the point in the story where I stop, how are you feeling right now? 
Okay, so just think about it from that point of view. So this is how it goes. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mats the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder how you're feeling at that point in the story. Because actually, if you're anything like me and the way that I've read this story before, you might be feeling a little bit disappointed. Because surely it's better to heal him. That's what he's come for. That's what he needs. He needs to walk. Surely, you know, that's what his friends have gone to all the effort for. Why... You know, now, we know that in the story, Jesus does go on to heal him. But at this point of the story, there is no indication that that's going to happen. All that's happened is this paralyzed man has been lowered. His friends are so desperate to get him to Jesus because they've seen what Jesus does. And all Jesus has said is, son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, but I wanted you to heal me. Now, if you feel that slight tinge of disappointment at that, like I have in the past... It's because we so easily lose sight of what that means, of what forgiveness of sins really means, and how great that is, greater than anything else that that could be given to us. It's because we haven't really grasped the, the, the depth of the pit that we were all in because of our sin, and the lengths that God went to to reach in and rescue us and lift us out of that pit. It's because we haven't really grasped the fleeting nature, how fleeting this life is compared to eternity. And so we cling on to to things of this life, things that are important but are temporary. And we cling on to them so that the ability to walk and to be relieved from suffering becomes more important in our minds than eternity with Jesus in glory, which is made possible by what Jesus did there, by the forgiveness of sins because of his sacrifice on the cross. Paul is under no illusions here. Paul is a guy who's come face to face with himself. He, he, he knows exactly what he was. He knows exactly how lost he was. He knows the extent, the, ex, the sheer extent of the debt that he was forgiven by God. He understands his life in the context of eternity. He knows how fleeting this life is. His life is defined by the grace of God's forgiveness is yours. Is that what defines you? Is that what defines your life? I was struck by a tweet that I read this week by Terry Virgo. He says this, he says, the horror, the horror of being found undeniably guilty, replaced by the wonder of complete forgiveness, of complete acceptance, complete justification, let's go and worship. And it's like, yes, yes, now do you share in that wonder? Do you share in that amazement at the forgiveness of sins and what it costs God to forgive you? Even those, of you, even those of us who maybe think, well, essentially, I'm quite a good person, really. God didn't really have to forgive me as much as he had to forgive that person. Let's be very careful of having that attitude. That's self-righteousness. You had a debt that you could never pay back. You were in the same boat as everybody else. You were lost. You were hopeless. You were bound for hell until God rescued you at a massive cost to himself. For, for to me to live is Christ. What about you? What is your life built on? How do you define life? For to me to live is what? 
For to me, to live is my career. It's about achieving, it's about progressing, it's about doing well. All good things, by the way. Nothing wrong with that. But if it's your whole life, if that's what your whole life is built on, then when you lose your job, when you don't get a promotion, when you are unable to work, it won't just be a sad event in your life. It will be devastating to you. Your life will collapse. When your career collapses, your life will collapse. You'll have nothing left. Or to me, to live is to have fun. It's about having fun. It's about pleasure. You know, working is only about earning money to be able to have fun in life, to be able to pursue as many leisure activities and as as many experiences of life that I possibly can. Good things. They're good things that are out there for us. But if that's what your whole life is about, if that's what your whole life is geared up to, then when something comes along to block that, your life will fall apart. You'll get depressed. You will lose hope. For me to live is to be wealthy and to, to have the comfort, the security that comes with wealth. But, but what if you lose that wealth? What if something happens, a financial crash? What if you come to the point of realizing, actually, I, I, I don't ever seem to be able to be comfortable or secure enough? Or you realize that you can't take any of this with you when you die? Then your life collapses. Because it's built on the wrong thing. To me, to live is to look beautiful and to look youthful. But when you age, your life collapses. Or you end up looking like Barry Manilow or Sharon Osbourne, which is worse. To me, to live is to be a good person. To be a good person, it's to be moral, it's, it's to be better than others. In Les Miserables, Javert, he kills himself because he can't cope with the fact that a criminal, Jean Valjean, is better than him. He can't cope with the grace that has been shown to him by Jean Valjean. He can't stand grace because he won't accept it because his life is built on being moral. I'm a moral person, I'm superior, I'm better than others. And he will not change and so he dies. He loses his life because of it. For me to live is to have friends, is to have family, is to have children. But what if you can't? Then, then life collapses. Or, or what if a member of your family dies? Then your life collapses. It goes into the coffin with that person. And that's not to minimize the, the, the pain of these kind of situations, you understand. But what is your life built on? What is life built on? Career, pleasure, money, morality, family, all good things of this life. But if they become ultimate things, it will end up destroying you and taking your life from you. These are the broken systems that Jeremiah talks about in Jeremiah chapter 2, which says, you know, we have forsaken God, the the fountain of living living water, and we dig out systems for ourselves that hold no water. Broken systems that actually don't hold any water. We exchange satisfaction in Christ for satisfaction in lesser things that cannot support the weight of our need. All these things I've been talking about, they're important things. Family is really important. But how often do we place the weight of our need on our family or on our spouse or on somebody important to us? They're not designed to cope with the weight of your need. It's unfair on them. Families are wonderful, but they are lesser than Christ. Only he can do that. Only he can support the whole weight of, you, of who you are and your needs and your expectations. Only he can do that. For to me to live is Christ. Paul 
He can't move around anymore. He can't preach the gospel here and there. He can't plant churches. His career is gone, but not his life. That's not his whole life. He's separated from his friends. There's a massive relational loss here. But his friends, as important as they are to him, as dear as they are to him, they're not his life. Paul lives for something else, and he lives for someone else who, who cannot be touched, cannot be taken away because of circumstances of life. You know, if you can genuinely say to me to live is Christ, if you can genuinely say that, that changes everything. It changes how we see everything. It changes how you view the world and how you see the problems of evil and injustice in the world. It changes how you view and how you go through hardships and suffering in your life. It changes how you love Your capacity to love is increased and it gets deeper because you know how much you are loved. Changes how you give. You you realize the truth of that scripture that says it is more blessed to give than receive. You become more generous. Changes the way you view death, as I've already said. It changes the way you sacrifice and and, and how you view self-denial. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. But instead of fixating on the self-denial bit of that, you fixate on the joy of following Jesus. And so you become willing to deny yourself certain things. You become willing to deny yourself the trappings of worldly wealth or the approval of other people. Because you get something much better. You get the wealth of being with Christ. You get the, the, the joy of God's approval. If you can genuinely say, to me, to live is Christ then it changes your need to go with the flow and be liked by everybody. The need for popularity. Do you know what? You realize that if someone is offended by the gospel, if somebody is offended by seeing Christ in you, that's okay. I don't need everybody to like me. And it changes how you view the church. The joy and the privilege of what we're doing here. Meeting with each other, meeting with God's people, being with God's people. A place of feeding, a place of healing, a place of meeting with God becomes something that you cannot miss. Such as the desperation for more of God and to be with his people and to encourage one another is something you cannot miss. If we can say together as the church, for us to live is Christ, then you know what? This place and up in Hazelmere will fill up multiple times because people will be getting saved because they just have to have what they see in you and what they see in us as a community. People will get saved. So how? How do we get there? Because I think we'd all admit, I think we'd all confess that we, we fall somewhere short of, of this standard. How do we get there? Well, Hebrews 12 tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. That was for us. The joy set before him, the joy of having us with him. That is why Jesus endured the cross. It was for us. And in John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, both the ones he had with him then and all those who would follow. That includes us. And he says, for them, I sanctify myself or I consecrate myself or I dedicate myself that they too may be truly sanctified. He gives all of himself for us. He holds nothing back. He gives all of himself. He consecrates himself. He, he dedicates himself. He gives all of himself for us. Or you could even say, he lives for us. He lives to do the will of his Father, which is to live for us. You know, if somebody's training for the Olympics, 
everything in life becomes subservient to that goal. So priorities change, you put things off, you put off marriage, you put off kids, you put off career. All your priorities in life go towards that goal. They're directed towards that goal. Everything about Jesus, everything that he did, leaving his place of majesty and glory, becoming a vulnerable, weak human baby, becoming a man, being persecuted, being tortured, suffering, dying a criminal's death on the cross, being raised to life. Everything that he did was subservient to one goal, and that is your rescue, my rescue, your perfection, your ultimate joy, your ultimate and eternal happiness. And it's kind of like Jesus saying, look at me, look at me, look at me on the cross. Look at what I'm prepared to go through for you, to have you with me. I'm prepared to give all of myself for you, prepared to go through this. For me to live is you. And when you look at that, and you consider that, and you you spend time there, you look at him on the cross and you just think, what he has done. And by the way, we need each other for this. We need each other. You can't do this on your own. We need to encourage one another. We need to see Christ in one another. It's Hebrews 10 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us spur one another on. That's why we need each other. We can't do this on our own. We need the help of the Holy Spirit with this. We need his equipping, empowering, strengthening. He points us to Jesus. He's the one who reveals Jesus to us. So we can't do any of this on our own. You can't on your own form a fully rounded picture of what Jesus is really like. We can only do that in community with others and with the Holy Spirit. But when you come to the cross and you consider Jesus on the cross and you ponder it and you realize what he has done and how undeserved that is and how much you receive as a result, that changes you. It has to change you. And and, and you say, Jesus, if for you to live as me, then it is my absolute joy. It is my privilege to say for me to live as you. You are everything. You are everything. And if for you to live as Christ, then no circumstance can take that life from you, can take that joy from you. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Amen.